I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. What, are, what have you said when people ask about the morality of this? You know, we we've often uh, get this sort of challenging question of, you know, what about the unintended consequences? You know, what if it goes wrong? What if science doesn't get it right? What we have seen is that this concept of unintended consequences is quite paralyzing for society. It basically <laughs> means don't do anything you don't fully understand. If we really want to help with the environment right now, if we really want to intervene, we have to actually start designing for intended consequences. What is it that we want to do that will be of benefit as opposed to being paralyzed by the things that we think are going to be the greatest risk? It's the biggest problem in politics is that we're too scared well, if you do that, then what happens, right? It's one of the reasons we haven't yeah. done anything on climate change. It's like, because we're worried about hurting the companies or hurting XYZ or changing things. Like, well, the reality is we're melting the planet, so we better do something. And in that realm, there's a lot of people who have made a very strong moral obligation argument that because these species are in trouble from the things that we did either intentionally or unintentionally in ignorance or exploitation, that we have to struggle with paying the cost to undo that harm. Welcome back to Yang Speaks, everybody. This is your co-host, Zach Grauman. I was Andrew's campaign manager on the presidential race. And now you're stuck with me as Andrew and myself pursue some political endeavors outside the realm of this podcast. But I'm glad you're here. April 1st, April Fool's Day. Happy April Fool's Day. Today is not an April Fool's joke. Today is the cloning episode. And it's awesome. A couple things. One, if you're watching on YouTube, I got a new camera, a new setup, and it looks sick. The background's still working. Okay, still working on that. I don't know what to put over yonder back there. Maybe a plant. I'm not sure. But the other thing I'm excited about, I hope you guys are enjoying the economy opening up a little bit. Weather's getting warmer. People go outside. And here in New York, people are getting vaccinated. In New York City, you're allowed to get vaccinated over the age of 30, which I am. So I'm going to get my vaccine um, and there's really exciting news that came out this week. The CDC announced, I got to read this, that you can't carry the virus after you have the vaccine, which is huge because that's a nightmare. People getting the vaccine and then still carrying coronavirus. So the director of the CDC said that, vac quote, vaccinated people do not carry the virus. They don't get sick. She said it on Rachel Maddow's show on MSNBC. And we know my thoughts on that channel. But she still is a very credible person to say this and it's not just in clinical trials she said but it's also in real world data so folks public service announcement as we start this episode get your vaccine please 
And look, I had my own hesitations on this. I was like, oh, should I get the vax? Like, I don't know, I'm pretty healthy. I didn't get coronavirus. It like doesn't really affect me. I got whatever it is. Clean bill of health. That's not the question, folks. It's not a question. It's, the question is this. Are you on team science or team not science? And if you're on team science, you believe in the vaccine, you believe in science, you get the freaking vax. You go get it. Because if you're on team science, it's not just about yourself. It's about others. Because if you don't have the vaccine, you can still carry coronavirus and give it to somebody who may be vaccinated but could still get it because they're super vulnerable. So don't be stupid. Get the vax. Be on team science. That's the right team. Get your vaccine. All right. Simple as that. Um, but more importantly, today's episode of The Future Of, I'm going to say this once, but I really mean it, Jurassic Park is real. Yep. These guys cloned a ferret. An endangered ferret, a black-footed ferret that was going extinct. And now it's not because they cloned it. And they've proven you can do this in other species. And it's wild. I've got a conversation between basically the leadership of a, a non... A, listen, there's a biotech nonprofit, which doesn't normally exist. Those are usually almost oxymorons because of how expensive biotech is. Uh, but it's a biotech nonprofit called Revive and Restore. And they use biotech and cloning and gene splicing to save endangered species and endangered ecosystems for conservation, um, which is a really interesting way of looking at things. A lot of times when we think of conservation, it's like save the pandas, uh, save XYZ, save the Amazon. Um, but they are doing that, but also using crazy science. And this is the future. Um, if they can get this at scale and inspire a new generation of people either my age or younger or um, even in their, you know, people making career moves who get into this space and put new minds and new research into this type of technology. Who knows what we can do? And it's a little terrifying because like I said, I only said I was only gonna say it once, but now I'm saying it twice. Jurassic Park is real. They've done stuff trying to clone woolly mammoths and trying to reinvigorate various types of ecosystems. Um, they talked to me how they struggle, they struggle to clone birds very crazy, wild stuff. Um, so Ryan Phelan, the uh, co-founder and executive director of Revive and Restore and her lead scientist, Ben Novak, they both join. Ryan is such a badass. Um, and I love people going to nonprofits who have a background in entrepreneurship and, uh, and biotech in particular. Just, it's just, a, it's a pedigree you don't get in the nonprofit world. And she's clearly kicking ass. So sit back, relax and enjoy the future of conservation, the future of cloning here on Yang Speaks. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. I'm beyond excited. We're gonna talk about the future of conservation and cloning, which I never thought were two words you would actually work together. There was a New York Times article that came out and the title said, Meet Elizabeth Ann, the first cloned black-footed ferret. And I looked into this, and it is the first of any native endangered animal species in North America to be cloned. And I thought, this is Jurassic Park. Oh, my goodness. And it blew my mind. And so I dug in, and I found the people who did this. And they are here on Yang Speaks to talk to us, guys. And it's very, very exciting. So... 
I'm proud, 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 proud to introduce Ryan Phelan, who is the co-founder and executive director of an organization called Revive and Restore, and the lead scientist of that organization, Ben Novak. Ryan and Ben, welcome to Yank Speaks. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Tell me what, what happened. Um, we'll start with you, Ryan. Let's, let's, let's walk me through this. Well, I will walk you through it, but first I got to, you know, temper the enthusiasm that this okay, is I'll not, calm down. <laughs> this is not bringing back an extinct species. This is helping to bring in new genetic diversity into a species that has been on the brink of extinction. In fact, not once, but twice it was thought to be extinct. Um, so not to take anything away from how absolutely monumental of a milestone this is, um, we like to say it's not just about cloning. This is cloning for conservation. Because remember, 25 years ago at the Roslyn Institute in the UK, the Dolly the Sheep was cloned, right? Yeah. It's yep. been 25 years since this has actually been really applied for conservation. The black-footed ferret was endangered, thought to be extinct. Did you wake up one day and say, we want to clone this specific animal? Like, how did, <laughs> how did this start? Well, so first of all, this is a project that has been in the works for over seven years. And it's a collaboration between a number of different partners. And I'm going to start with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So I think part of the reason why when you said to me, you know, how is this not more newsworthy? This is newsworthy. It's newsworthy that it's a collaboration between a government organization in the U.S. working under a federal permit for endangered species. It brought in for-profit partners like Viagen Pets and Equine, the leading cloning company. It included the San Diego Zoo, which uh, has something called the Frozen Zoo, where these cell lines have been banked for 30 plus years. Oh, wow. That's what's they're, so they're ready for this. <laughs> well, they were ready for this. But you know what's so great, Zach, is they were ready for this before they even knew how they could apply it. Right. So these species were thought to be extinct in the early 80s. They were, their original terrain was all across what's called the Great Plains of North America, from all the way from uh, the Mexico border all the way up into Canada. And uh, they became in conflict with farmers and ranchers who thought they were a problem on their land. They were over-harvested. They were literally extirpated from the land. And these small fragmented populations, uh, you know, ended up being in different clusters. Finally, those got, that we thought, winnowed down completely. So the black-footed ferret in the 80s, um, believed to be extinct, all of a sudden a rancher actually came across one small um, uh, family of black-footed ferrets. And they brought them into captivity because they really believed these were the final ones, and they were. A very smart vet there at the uh, Wyoming uh, Fish and Game Service spoke to a colleague at the San Diego Zoo at a chance encounter at a meeting. And, and the scientist, Dr. Oliver Ryder at the San Diego Zoo said, if you ever have an opportunity to send me some skin tissue from one of these ferrets, I would like to put it in the frozen zoo because we never know what we could possibly do to help the species. The San Diego Zoo, they just have dozens, hundreds of different species that are extinct in frozen DNA in there? Is that what that is? Endangered species are in the frozen zoo. 
Um, I think they only have cells from one or two species that have gone extinct in the past okay. couple decades. They have more than 1,000 species, and they have tens to hundreds of of individual cell lines from each of those species. So it's it's definitely in the 10,000 range what they have stored away in these cryotanks. To Ryan's story, what's really neat about bringing Elizabeth Ann, this clone, into the world is this year is actually the 40th anniversary of the rediscovery of those black-footed ferrets in Wyoming. Um, and Whoa. so it's, yeah, it's, Timely. It's, a, it's a very, very interesting milestone. Back in 2014, we started working with a company called Cofactor to sequence the genomes of Willa, who is Elizabeth Ann's uh, clonal mother, you know, the original and what we knew about the, the population at that time, what the story that got conveyed to us was that all living black-footed ferrets, which this breeding season, they will reach um, 10,000 birthed ferrets over the last 34 uh, years. Um, and all those ferrets they've bred over the years are descended from just seven wild individuals that were captured in the 80s. And, uh, and Willa, this, these cell lines came from an individual that was not one of those seven. So she could potentially bring in, you know, a new gene pool into this population, but she was captured with those founders. So it was unknown as was she somebody's sister? Was she, you know, uh, somebody's mother? Maybe she's not actually that unique. And no one really knew how much these animals had changed over, you know, 25, 30 years of captive breeding and reintroduction of the wild. So we picked out a few samples to compare the 1980s to the present day, and the results spoke for themselves. Willa's genome has um, anywhere, but on average, three times more unique variation than living present day ferrets. And so, I mean, that was the kind of the smoking gun that said, if we bring her back into the population, She's going to infuse it with diversity. I think that this comes to the crux of why bother doing this? Why is this such an important thing to do? Yeah. When, when these species become so fragmented and when they become cl so closely related, inbreeding occurs, they become more susceptible to disease, they start having fewer and fewer offspring, all kinds of things can happen that make them extremely vulnerable. So if you can actually reverse that trend and bring in new genetic variation, you can start to expand that population and create potentially a much healthier uh, population. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. 
Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So how does this work? You had a, I'm assuming some genetic line or some form of DNA from the mother. Um, and then what, where do you guys come in? And then, and then I'd love to learn actually how all, like both the science and then how the other players here get involved in that science too. Because the bureaucracy of the science can always be fascinating too, in a way. The nice thing about con- communicating cloning is, is uh, it's, on paper, it's a very simple technique, and it hasn't really changed since the first animals were cloned in 1957. Um, basically, you take the egg cell of a donor mother, and you remove its nucleus, its DNA, so it's an em- basically an empty egg cell at that point, and you take a cell from the animal you want to clone, and you fuse those together, and... That releases the new DNA from the donor into that egg cell, and it actually fools the egg cell into believing it's been fertilized, because now it has a full set of DNA, just like a naturally fertilized animal would be. And in a Petri dish, the scientists doing the cloning, they stimulate growth for, you know, uh, about a 24-hour period to get that embryo big enough to be able to put into a surrogate mother, in the case of the black-footed ferrets. Um, we use the domestic ferret as the surrogate mother and the egg cell donor. And then it's just, you know, it's basically what everyone learns about the miracle of life from there. It's pregnancy and birth, which is itself probably even more complicated than making the clone, um, and more amazing. And, and that's it in a nutshell. So the, the mother was the ferrets we all know, not a black footed ferret and the clone cells were of the species you're saving. Am I following correctly? Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so in the case of Elizabeth Ann, we're using the egg cell of a domestic ferret in order to bring a cloned black-footed ferret into the world. Um, and it's, it's a really old technique. It actually goes, this technique actually does go all the way back to 1957, being able to take the eggs of one species in order to give birth to another. The DNA you used had been frozen since since 1988. I was, I was one year old when Willa's cells were frozen. (laughs) Wow. Where is this done? Do you guys have the facilities? Is it done at the zoo? Like, and how much equipment is needed to pull this off? Is it just a simple, like, is it a test tube lab? Is it crazy frozen? Is it like the movies? Like what, what, you know, my movie I'm thinking is Jurassic Park. (laughs) Well, the, the one, the one nice thing about the cloning process is that in every science movie, science fiction movie, you see dry ice, you see that happen. And that's the one cool thing about this is that actually happened in this project. So Oliver lifts up the, the top of the cryo tank, the, the nitrogen gas comes out, ooh, there's the cells. But then from there on, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty basic. It's pretty basic. <laughs> um, the cells literally get shipped in a FedEx package to <laughs> Viagen, the company that does the cloning. And there they take that frozen vial of cells thaw them out, grow them up in a Petri dish, um, and they select some out to make the embryos. 
And at that point, it becomes a veterinary procedure. You know, they're implanting into the surrogate mom. So the, the disciplines involved are, are just like, you know, a lot of other things. But yeah, the, Viagen is the company that uh, did the cloning. And then the neat step in cloning Elizabeth Ann is that black-footed ferrets, as Ryan pointed out, you know, they're endangered. We're working with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. As an endangered species, they are actually the property and care of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So the pregnant females halfway through pregnancy, were packaged up into a crate, into a van to stay safe during COVID, and driven from New York, where they were made, all the way out to Fort Collins, Colorado, where they were born. How long does the taking the DNA out of the dry ice, if you will, and then getting it, getting the... Um, the egg, if you will, ready to be placed into the mother. Um, how long is that process? You know, you know, in truth, the cloning process itself, particularly for the black-footed ferrets, is not very long. You take the cells out of the vial and grow them up, and it's about maybe two or three weeks before you make the embryos to have you know, enough cells to evaluate to make the embryos. And once you're making the embryos, you're 24 hours away from putting them into a mother. And in the case of the ferrets, that's then 42 days away from giving birth. So it's, it's less than three months total, um, start to finish. But, you know, the, you know, for, we also, uh, cloned a very valuable Chevalsky's horse from 40 year old cells from the San Diego zoo with the same partners for the base, the same reasons. And the horse pregnancy was 11 months. So much longer process. It's all, it's all based on the animal you're working with. Right. The seven and a half years that led up to Elizabeth Ann being born was really actually doing the genomic study, working out the, the steps involved to actually get permission to do this. You know, this was a, this was a first on many levels for the, the program, for the country. So there was a lot to go through to get to that last little uh, uh, major haul. And then, of course, we were all holding our breath the week that the labors were starting. How, why am I not reading about this in the New York Times all the time? That's a really good question, Zach. And I think it's important for us to put cloning in the right context, which is that um, in the best possible world, conservation happens, should happen preventively, right? You want to be getting species and to ensure that they're healthy way before they start going onto the brink of extinction. Um, there's nothing easy really about bringing species back from the brink. It's costly. Being in this position is something that you want to do for only those species that really need help. If you can do all the other preparatory stuff and prevent that kind of problem, you want to do it. Yeah. How much does it cost? Companies like Viagen, they have um, you know, a range of pricing from you know, 50000 to to 100000 depending on the species. But uh, it in terms of scalability, you don't want to be continually cranking out clones if you can avoid it. You know, there, there's no question that natural reproductive biology is much simpler for all the animals concerned, whether it's a surrogate or the actual uh, endangered species. So um, I think what's really important here is that, that there are new tools, though, for conservation. Cloning is but one of them. And that is what Revive and Restore is really focused on, trying to demonstrate how these new emerging tools from genomics to synthetic biology to genome engineering can actually help species 
um, in these critical stages in, you know, in, in the Anthropocene, where we have already really intervened in nature in many ways, in very damaging ways, as with climate change. How can we use these new technologies to help these species out until they can be more sustainable on their own? Before I got into politics, I was um, used to run a, we're on a team called Client Flank to be solutions at UBS. And we used to help families give money to charity. So I worked with a lot of conservation organizations and the general MO of these orgs was to save them, right? In the, in the traditional sense where it's uh, raise money, make you feel like watch cute videos of pandas. And then we're spending money on either like protected conservation areas of, of geography. There's um, you're sh literally like, there's some lobbying work that's done to find poachers and they, you know, there's a lot of things, but this is the first time I've heard where you're like, Hey, we're using science to save these, these animals and it's yeah. wild. Yeah. I, I think Zach, you're onto something here. There is a, a natural tension that is uh, inherent to conservation, which is there's one camp. If I'm going to be really simplistic here, there's one camp that says, uh, let nature take its course. Let's not intervene. Let's protect what we can. Um, but let's not, be too hands-on. There are other conservationists who say, actually, we do have to intervene. Um, and so it's not just about preserving, it's about actually helping species adapt. A really good example of this right now is a debate going on in the uh, situation with coral reefs that are dying worldwide with warming temperatures, right? And so there are purists who say, we can't mess with them. We can't even think of relocating corals. We can't think of ways to engineer them to adapt to a, a, a warming environment. And there are those that are saying, how can we not intervene? Right. We have the ability, right? right? Theoretically. You know, if we know how to do it, shouldn't we be trying at least before they're all gone? And so clearly Revive and Restore is in the camp of we need to be proactive, not just precautionary. Right. We need to be lean into the situation and try to figure out, can science actually help? How do you monitor it to know that it really can help with an intervention? Can you look at it with a long term studies and ensure that any kind of intervention is really going to be healthy for animals, healthy for people? This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. 
That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. As you evaluate what species to start saving, right? Like a ferret is one thing, but there's probably others that maybe can be as quote unquote insignificant to a human as a ferret that have a massive domino effect on an ecosystem. Like, I'm so curious how you guys pick and prioritize what to clone, what to save. Well, I think there are a couple of things. One, um, as an entrepreneur, <laughs> I'm opportunistic. And so a fair bit of what we're doing is we're going where there's momentum, where there's a dedicated group of people like the Fish and Wildlife Service. When they came to us and said, help us with the black-footed ferret, it was like, okay, they have a vested interest in this. Their skill They're and will the responsible. here. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. have, you know, they have people that have dedicated 30, 40 years to the black-footed ferret. It was sort of you know, Ben and I walked into that meeting. We thought, boy, we're really the newcomers here. Um, and we still feel that after seven years to some degree. So um, we go where there's momentum, where there's a will to look at for innovation and to look for change. And then we're also at the same time weighing how important is this for conservation? How impactful is the species that's uh, at risk? Is it an ecosystem engineer? Is it a keystone species like coral um, that, you know, everything else all around it depends on all the fish um, and, you know, depends on that healthy environment. And so that becomes kind of a no brainer. If you could actually help bring innovation into those areas, you don't just help, in this case, the black footed ferret, you're help, helping all the species that rely on that ecosystem of the American prairie. The passion for me is is birds. I think that's a passion for a lot of people. I mean, there, there are 45 million birders in the United States alone that spend billions of dollars every year on bird seed and, and binoculars and trips to go see birds. The reality is, you know, there's two, there's two difficult realities. I mean, I mean, it would, it would be amazing to live in a world where we had unlimited resources for everything. Um, but the way we've built our economy and the way we, you know, the way we live in the infrastructure is not that. And conservation, while it seems to be high in the value list for everybody culturally, it's really low on the value list economically. So how we select what we work on, I think is, is actually the way the whole field of conservation is working. They're trying to use limited resources and funds to go with where there's will and support and infrastructure and pick species where you can do the best amount of good. But in truth, if we had all the funds in the world, we, we would work on everything, conserving and making harmony with everything. But birds are the one area where there's 11,000 species of birds in the world and one out of every eight of them is threatened with extinction. And we have no technology right now to do for them what we just did for black-footed ferrets and Chevalsky's horses. What we're talking about doing with coral reefs. We have none of it. Because, all because the reproductive technique to be able to take that 
embryo in a petri dish yeah. and make it into an animal, it's not there. It all has to do with the hard-shelled egg. So this is probably a problem that extends to reptiles as well. Um, but yeah, we we and you know I was brought on to revive and restore to bring the passenger pigeon back to life. Um, and the problem in biotechnology when it comes to birds is what comes first, the bird or the egg? Well, it's the egg, and the egg is a problem. But if we literally crack that egg and make the right omelet, we open up genetic rescue for for a whole host of species. Why doesn't the science work the same way when it's a hard shell egg? When we cloned Elizabeth Ann the ferret and Kurt the Chevalsky's horse, the embryos were made in a petri dish, just like, just like thousands of people alive today who were made by in vitro fertilization, right? You make an embryo and then you implant it into a mother. On birds, there's no mother to implant into. You have to get that embryo into an egg. And the way the egg forms inside of the mother bird around the embryo just complicates the matter that when an egg is laid, the embryo is already partly grown up. So you can't go from that single cell embryo and go right into an egg. The other difficult part is to do something like cloning. The issue is what not a lot of people know about eggs. The yolk, you crack open an egg and eat it, that entire yolk is one cell. The orange part in an egg is one cell. The yolk of eggs are the largest biological cells in the world. And you'll notice that they're opaque and their little DNA is floating around somewhere in that thick yolk. You have to be able to find that to remove it to be able to actually make a cloned embryo. So just doing that. It's like a physical is, challenge is too. It's oh a physical challenge, yeah. However, once the egg is laid and that embryo is a little growing up, it is an environment that is so much more accessible than a uterus um, in a mammal. Like you can, you, you can literally chop the top off of an egg and pour a baby out into another egg and it will hatch. You can hatch it out of saran wrap. You can do all kinds of manipulation to a bird once it's grown up to a certain point, but it's those early stages that are inaccessible. So bird biogenetic rescue could really explode, but we have to make this one breakthrough first. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. What, are, what have you said when people ask about the morality of this? In that, you know, people say you're, you're either playing God, but I don't really care about that part so much. But more of that, this is amazing technology that could be potentially used in the wrong hands, the wrong purposes, or even accidentally be strange. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you guys think of that? And how do we control for that? And what are your thoughts? It's hard for me to imagine a scenario that's really dark. Um, about these technologies. I think the, the, the moral issue that people do get concerned about is animal welfare. And, um, you know, 
there are people that feel that it's immoral to have zoo animals in captivity, period. Um, and so, you know, I believe that um, more and more zoos worldwide are very focused on conservation. Uh, and in fact, they're a major contributor to conservation because very often the breeding of those animals that are done in zoos then get reintroduced to the wild. And so they're, they play a very important part of that, that conservation ecosystem. It can't happen without those animals in captivity. So I think it's always a question of, do you care about the individual animal more than the collective population or the collective species as a whole? Um, and so, yes, maybe uh, some animals may suffer individually through some of this process and in some of this experimentation. But if you're doing it in order to ensure that the population survives, um, I think you got to look at the, the greater good. The, the welfare issue is actually why we use the domestic ferret um, to clone Elizabeth Ann. It's why we use a domestic horse to clone the wild Chevalsky's foal is because domestic species have been living with human beings for thousands of years for the purposes we've bred them to do. Their welfare is well accounted for. Um, and, you know, it, it takes a surrogate mother. It takes an egg donor to make these animals. Um, black-footed ferret females are best used just breeding more offspring rather than being donors. So if you, so, that was the big reason why we go to a domestic species, something that we know we can give really great welfare to in captivity, and then bring a new valuable animal into an endangered species. But on that zoo concept that Ryan brings up, you know, if it wasn't for zoos and captive breeding, black-footed ferrets, condors, hooping cranes, kakapo would all be extinct today. The people behind this, when you really meet people working in zoos who do this and the people doing conservation, animal welfare issues of the individuals, they're at their, their hearts. Like people bond with these animals and, and they're doing an amazing job uh, today, unlike any generation before, to make sure that we can save species without incurring costs like uh but it but it's true there's a pragmatic aspect to it that we have to just at the end of the day say what do we pay to save a species and what is the value of an entire species worth and and in that realm there's a lot of people who have made a very strong moral obligation argument that because these species are in trouble from the things that we did either intentionally or unintentionally in ignorance or exploitation that we have to struggle with paying the cost to undo that harm. You know, we, we've often uh, get this sort of challenging question of, you know, what about the unintended consequences? You know, what if it goes wrong? What if science doesn't get it right? Um, and uh, it, what we have seen is that this concept of unintended consequences is quite paralyzing for society. It basically <laughs> means don't do anything you don't fully understand. Don't do anything that, you know, you've got these unknown unknowns out there. Until you answer them, you can't proceed. And um, we did this amazing workshop. And at the end of the day, um, it became really clear that if we really want to help with the environment right now, if we really want to intervene, we have to actually start designing for intended consequences. What is it that we want to do that will be of benefit as opposed to being paralyzed by the things that we think 
are going to be the greatest risk. So finding that balance is both a moral, cultural, economic shift for a lot of people to think through. Where do they put their time, their energy, their money for conservation? It's the biggest problem in politics is that we're too scared. Well, if you do that, then what happens, right? It's one of the reasons we haven't yeah. done anything on climate change. It's like, because we're worried about hurting the companies or hurting XYZ or changing things. Like, well, the reality is we're melting the planet, so we better do something. Yeah. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. Time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. So what, what does the future look like? What, and I, I, like, I'd love to talk about two, two pieces of that. What, what's exciting you? And then what, what could be scary? Kind of like the unintended consequence. What are the downside risks that could be scary? Let's start with what's exciting you? What does this look like 10, 20 years from now, 50 years from now? What are we looking at? Before talking about the next 20 to 50 to 100 years is we're living in an amazing future of conservation right now. Like getting back to this issue of intended and unintended consequences People have been doing intended conservation for a long time. You can, we looked at just one, one part of conservation, just the movement of wildlife from a zoo to the wild, from one location to another. That's been going on for 125 years in the United States. And the track record is 99.99999% successfully beneficial unintended consequences that people have feared for decades and continue to fear just haven't bore out. Like the um, fear that they won't integrate, the tiger won't integrate back into the wild. Exactly. The right These fears whatever. have not bore out. Um, okay. uh, and, and, uh, and so looking to the future, if we look at just right now compared to where we were at the beginning of conservation and you think of the amazing way we can bring in biotechnologies, we're living in a in a world that is proof that conservationists do good work responsibly. They think about the risks and they mitigate and anticipate those. They save species. Um, and we take a lot of it for granted. You know, out here on the East Coast, <laughs> yeah. white-tailed deer are everywhere. 120 years ago, they were on the verge of extinction. And today, they are a conservation success story. Nobody talks about that because that all happened before we ever had an Endangered Species Act, before we were, you know, really aware of all this stuff. So the history of conservation is we're already in it. You, you add biotechnology to that with the people behind the wheel that are good drivers of this. And there's so many amazing things we could do. Actually make sure that we don't lose coral reefs in the next 50 years. Bring back species into environments that are so valuable that you know that we've never been able to before that we can re-diversify the planet keep genetics going and really in my opinion create a future where 
there's equity and balance in how humans of every walk of life can enjoy and live in harmony every walk of their day with the millions of other species on this planet. Man, I love that answer. I think I'm learning here in some ways that in order to be in the conservation business, you kind of have to be some form of an optimist, you know, because it's such a forward-looking, futuristic, hope for a better future business industry. Yeah, I mean, well, if right? you think about it, <laughs> Oliver Ryder froze the will the cells of Willa 33 years ago with yeah. the hope they'd be used someday. You know, that's optimism to its that's core. Good. good point. And that's conservation. It's it's about being pragmatic today with an optimistic spirit that you're going to win and you keep working until you win. And I think, Ryan, you know, if I can say for all of us, that's why intended consequences is such a huge paradigm shift that's important because if all you're thinking of is how can this go wrong and it's going to go wrong and we're doomed and you think in fear, you give up. And conservation has been a success story of perseverance that you keep going till you get success. That's how businesses are made. That's how politicians win uh, candidacies. That's how we save species. And biotech is going to give us ways to do that that we've never had the ability to do before. Um, and so, you know, I would love it if there was a flood of movies and TV shows that stopped peddling the dystopian future of biotechnology because <laughs> everyone we know using it is doing it to do something amazing and good in this world. And... And so when you ask, what are we scared of or what are the unintended consequences? I can't think of any that are serious because the nature of this field is about doing something that's going to have benefit. It's such a good point where it's, there's so much, there's not a lot of quick wins in your world. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like so much work and energy and trial and error. So like, let's talk about the, like the evil doer who's the bad guy in avatar who's mining the new planet for whatever or you know that's what like human beings think of and i think of this right uh, that human in your space is going to have a lot of barriers to prevent them from being the bad guy because it's so hard and time consuming um so that actually is really uplifting and ultimately zach um none of this technology goes forward without social license uh, mm. We have a regulatory environment. As soon as you're working with endangered species, it has to be complied with. Um, but, you know, increasingly what we're hearing throughout our culture right now is that um, people of all different walks of life bear relationship to nature, whether it's in their own backyard or it's out uh, at the top of a mountain somewhere when they're skiing. Everybody comes at it from a different perspective and they all have a, a common right to care about what's going on in their environment, allowing those voices to be heard, giving it permission for them to actually have a voice in how we interact with nature um, is going to be a real important part of the equation. And it's something that I think will build in this patience in a sense that you're calling for in conservation. It can't happen fast. Um, you know, these species have been on the planet for thousands of years. And what we want to do is keep them on this planet for the next millions of years. So to do that, um, we have to have the long, the long term thinking in place, the long goal. So you guys both mentioned, you mentioned coral, you mentioned birds, what else? And, and, don't, and that's not to say that's not a lot of work, but what else is next in the, the Ryan Ben 
save of the world universe. Uh, what else is exciting you down the, the near term? So we've just um, started a pretty new initiative this last year called Wild Genomes. And we're um, actually funding researchers around the world to vote to do to do two things um, to sequence a particular species that they're working on to do full genome sequencing or reference genomes and to cryopreserve those species for the future. So um, in doing this, we've we, we set up a criteria for them and we said basically you can apply for funding to accomplish this assuming that you are going to apply it for conservation. So this is not just an academic exercise. I want to know everything about the evolution of a particular species. You can't just species. learn. You have to use it. You have to use it. And you have to demonstrate to us in your proposal that understanding how the jaguar is moving in North America across state lines by looking at the sequence data is going to be very compelling for the protection of that species or, or whatever the, uh, the issue is that that particular species is fake facing. And we've uh, done it both for terrestrial species as well as marine species. And what we're finding is that there are young researchers and not so young researchers all over the world that have not yet had an opportunity to deploy the benefit of genomic technology. It's, you know, it is not <laughs> ubiquitous at all in conservation and it should be. It's getting cheap enough accessible enough. And that's part of what Revive and Restore is really excited about is enabling this um, with researchers all over the world. So you're going to help these young researchers use the technologies that, let's call it two, 10, 20 years ago, researcher in the past, which has been great, had did not have the access to, and now we do. And it's cheaper and more effective and faster. Exactly. And it can tell them all kinds of things. It can explain everything about how that population is doing in terms of their genetic variation, like the black-footed ferret. It can be uh, viewed to help be an indicator of other health issues. It can help them understand the population structure. Um, it can, you know, we're, we're looking at it for the potential to identify uh, invasive species, to identify um, particular targets for other aspects that would even include genome engineering um, to eradicate an invasive species or whatever. So uh, it's pretty compelling, but it is genomic sequencing is, is the fundamental baseline that we would like to see in the conservation toolbox uh, to deploy that today is really, I think, imperative. Yeah, we're actually completely unique in that space. There are a lot of I was going to ask, who's doing world. this? Because I did do some, let's call it dumb guy research on what's going on in this space. And I found you. And that's about it. Some governmental programs, I guess. But what, like, what does the landscape we've, look like? We've become the Rome of, of genetic rescue. <laughs> okay. All, all roads lead to us somehow. Um, because of the amazing people we've been able to make networks with. Um, the, but, you know, we learned early on that biomedicine is just, you all, all you hear about in biomedicine anymore is genomes, 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 and in conservation, that's just not where they're at. And, and there are so many projects going, we're going to sequence every bird genome, we're going to sequence every uh, vertebrate genome, but they're not doing it in a way that translates that information into action. And they're not targeting endangered species, they're just doing what they can, because it's hard. It took 
as we said, seven years to work with a black-footed ferret, there are, there are necessary protections in place to be able to work with these species. And so we say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to enable the young people and, and even veterans out there that want to do this and start making this show the world that you can do this and improve conservation through it. And I think what's also unique about this fund is we're kind of hoping that we can eventually work ourselves out of a job in this one because it would be great if after 10 or 15 years or less of funding these amazing projects that governments around the world, that leaders actually look at it and go, you know what, these are things we can be funding these researchers to do, that new revenue sources come in uh, because, yeah, you know, the future of genetic rescue and conservation is really in the hands of politicians and leaders in our world. Um, and so far, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's been pretty dismal how much attention is given to the future of an entire world and new generations of humans to come over the, the exploitations that we think matter right now in the four-year political cycle. You've just said a lot of things that I loved when I was a philanthropy advisor is that you're, you're funding research, you're funding other people, you're partnering, you've got a lot of other organizations, um, and you're trying to work yourself out of a job. Um, those are three main things. A lot you're taking risks, right? Like those are things a lot of nonprofits do not do. How can the Yang Gang? How can our listeners? How do, how do they find you guys? What's the easiest, best way to support you? Um, what's helpful? So Revive and Restore is, as you have said, we're a nonprofit 501c3. We're open to donations. Um, our website is very simple, reviverestore.org. Uh, and uh, we would, you know, welcome uh, engagement with more people from all over the world. Both Ryan and Ben, um, thank you. Congratulations on um, Elizabeth Ann and all of the work you're doing. I am excited. I've said this, everybody's come on the future of said 10 years, I'll reach out to you and see what else you guys have birthed to the world and what other technologies have, have, have now put a dent in the universe its own way. But um, keep doing what you're doing. We are behind you and thank you for, for joining. <laughs>